HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our summer 2022 issue, now available online, explores the themes of borders and boundaries, featuring articles on migrant experiences, food imaginaries, and practices of provisioning through food rearing and preservation. Join us as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guests this week are Consuelo Carsalas and Colleen Hamelman. Consuelo Carsalas is an assistant professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing Studies at San Diego State University. Colleen Hamelman is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much for having us. Can I ask you to each briefly elaborate on your work? Tell listeners about your work. What does your research and your fo- uh, teaching focus on? I'll go ahead and go first for today. So I am a visual rhetorician as well as what I call a food study scholar. So my work kind of looks at the ways that images have been connected with certain foods, but most of the people that are connected with those foods. Um, and so my work is mostly in the writing studies department, but I have found a way to kind of bring in visual forms of communication and how visuals play a role in communicating certain ideas about people or changing ideas about people. Colleen? Um, yeah, so I am an urban geographer, uh, and I teach and I do research broadly about food migration and social justice. And in doing this work, I've examined topics across urban food systems, focusing on food insecurity, um, urban agriculture. And right now I'm looking at the relationship between gentrification and food businesses. And I look at these processes in cities across the Americas. 
Uh, I also direct the Charlotte Action Research Project at UNC Charlotte, where we implement research in partnership with community leaders in order to identify tangible solutions to challenges that they identify in their community. And so my work is really grounded in social justice principles and, and trying to have you know a broader sort of activist impact from the research that I do. And the article that we're here to talk about today, uh, just published in our most recent issue, is called Looking for True Mexican Food in Charlotte, Insights into How Authenticity is Produced, Experienced, and Interpreted in Migrant Food Spaces. And the piece is co-authored with geographer Sarah Tornabene. How did this particular project and your collaboration together on it come about? That's quite an interesting story that we have. So I used to be a faculty member at UNC Charlotte with Colleen. And Colleen and I actually came in a, into our faculty positions at about the same time, um, or at exactly the same time. And so we were sitting next to each other in one of our very many new faculty orientations. And we were like, well, what do you, what are your, what is your research interests? And we were both pleasantly surprised. I think I could say that for both of us that we both studied issues around food. Um, and so it was very serendipitous that we just kind of were in the right place at the right time. But then we started to move that into more of a collaborative aspect of what were Colleen's research interests, what was I interested in looking at. Um, and then from there, this project uh, in an early stage started to develop. Colleen was interested in some things that were very similar to what I was interested in. Um, and as new faculty, we just kind of decided that it would be useful for both of us to pair up. But then that, um, grew and blossomed into a really interesting uh, collaboration where these two disciplines where I wouldn't have necessarily previously seen a lot of overlap between the two studies of geography and rhetoric uh, really started to become very interesting. Um, and, and so that's kind of the original origin of this collaboration. And then Sarah came in um, as a student of Colleen's, but I'll go ahead and let Colleen talk about that part. Yeah, I'll just, you know, add that we found that this topic was a place that really had a nice convergence of both what Consuelo was thinking about from the perspective of rhetoric and what I was thinking about as an urban geographer. Um, and then Sarah's a PhD candidate in my department who's been working with me for several years now on my food studies research and um, as an immigrant herself was very interested in some of these topics. And so it worked very nicely to bring her in to also be participating in this project. And so in the article we've, and in the research that you uh, worked on together, we see this intersection of urban geography methods and, and, and rhetoric. And that comes together in this notion of authenticity. So what does authenticity mean in the context of your research? And what do notions of authenticity reveal or have the potential to reveal? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. When I was first studying food studies under uh, Meredith Abarca, the concept of authenticity was always so curious to me. Um, and so f for me, my this this definition of authenticity comes from work like Meredith Abarca's where it's uh, authentic or not, it's original. So this concept of, of being very contingent upon the consumer and what is original to them. Um, also, uh, I was very fascinated again with Lisa Helke's concept of, uh, the, the question that she poses in her piece, um, exotic appetites, where she asks authentic for whom, under what context and in what context. And so that's always kind of been, um, 
where I have situated these conversations of authenticity is kind of like asking these questions instead of providing a, a clear definition. Um, and that really showed up in this piece in an interesting way with the convergence of the concept of habitus, um, coupled with those ideas of original for whom and uh, under what context, with really thinking about not so much uh us defining authenticity in this piece, but more so really interested in how people's previous experiences, how what they have, what they're coming to these spaces, these restaurants, uh, having already experienced, how that's intersecting uh, to then create their own definition of habitus. So in this piece, we weren't so much interested in trying to define authenticity per se, but rather really using it as a lens to understand uh, individuals' predispositions, expectations, and experiences, um, and how they were bringing those to the table, and then uh, creating the, the more so showcasing or kind of making visible how those things have played a role in defining what is authentic for them. And would you say then that you're interested in a practice or a process as far as authenticity goes. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of the phrase that I found um, in reading your piece, this, the phrase of invoking authenticity. Um, so not necessarily, it, it, it's, it's, it's a practice of search or, or, or deployment of, of authenticity. Yeah, I think deployment of authenticity is a good way to put that. And more so like from, the, from our perspective, looking at reviews, right? Like how have different consumers utilized authenticity or have like what we say invoke authenticity, right? Because sometimes not everybody is using term authentic. There may be like, this reminds me of home or this reminds me of when I was blank uh, and maybe list some kind of travel experience that they have had. Um, and so it's kind of these moments where people are invoking the concept of authenticity and then what is surrounding that, right? Like what language is surrounding that, that then helps to kind of characterize what is authentic to them. And then how are they then using that as the litmus or the marker of what they're experiencing in this moment? Like how does it measure up with what their expectations were or what their previous experiences have been? And so this really brings us to the question of, of uh, the research methods. And your research brings together both fieldwork and digital research methods, again, because it's really located at the intersection of urban geography and, and, and rhetoric studies. Uh, I really appreciated how the article draws on social media discourse and on interviews with entrepreneurs. Can you tell listeners about the voices of your research sites, the digital sites and the physical sites and how you brought them together in your methodology? Yeah. So, you know, I think that we were very interested in trying to tell kind of both sides of the story here as best as we could. And so, you know, in looking at online restaurant reviews, we really saw this relationality between where, where between one of the many sites where Habitus is invoked and in claiming or denying the authenticity of a place, but also where the construction of foodways occurs. Um, and we find that online, reviewers don't only provide their perspectives on cuisines that are unfamiliar or overlooked, um, but they become investors who influence restaurants' business models and create a discursive space. 
And so, you know, for us, it was really important to look at the ways that this was occurring um, and how online reviewers are providing readers with information about their experience that was really descriptive. It was talking a lot about the spaces, the imagery they were seeing, the other bodies that were that were present in those spaces, as well as then the foodstuffs and how things tasted and so on. Um, and the, these descriptions and the assessment of their experience um, was often placed in this lens of authenticity, um, but was also informed by their experiences in other places. And they were bringing all of that together to construct an idea of what particular places were. Um, but it, we didn't want to just look at those reviews. We also wanted to hear descriptions um, and information from business owners who are making the decisions about the foods that are being served, the decor that people see, the general ambiance on their in their restaurants. And so for that, you know, we we took on doing some interviews. Um, we looked at a great collection of oral histories that the Southern Foodways Alliance puts on and really tried to tell both sides of those stories. Um, I'll say, though, that we weren't able to do as many interviews as we had hoped um, because of the difficult sociopolitical climate that was in place while we were doing this research. We were primarily collecting data in 2019 and 2020. Um, and during that time, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement had conducted many raids in Charlotte, including sitting in the parking lot of some of the restaurants that we were looking at and talking with people about. And so those raids, along with the start of the pandemic, created a climate of fear um, that just made it very difficult to, to ask people to come out and share their information and, and be talking about what was, what was going on. On there. Um, and when did you begin? When did you begin the research? Um, because COVID happened in the middle of the fieldwork process as well. Yeah. So we started the research sort of in late 2019, early 2020. Okay. Um, and so we were really just getting going on all of the interviews um, mm -hmm. when COVID started. And the work specifically focuses on, on Charlotte in North Carolina. What initially brought you to this site? Can you tell us a little bit more about the some of the the context, the historical um, geographic context of you know why why did you choose this site for your research? Um, you know, even in twenty nineteen, Charlotte is quite an interesting uh, location. So I'll be uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of backstory. Uh, when Colleen and I first began as faculty members it, at UNC Charlotte. Um, I had come from El Paso, Texas, and so I wasn't really quite sure what to expect with the city of Charlotte. I had never really, prior to getting the position there, hadn't really heard very much about the city. But uh, as soon as we arrived uh, in the city, I started to learn so much about the diversity and quickly changing demographics of Charlotte. So actually, right before my faculty appointment began in the summer, before my position, the Southern Foodways Alliance had a symposium that was really looking at the Latinx foodways within what they called the New South of Charlotte. Um, and so that was really fascinating to see uh, that things that I had not been previously aware of, of how much immigration had uh, or migration had already started to shift the city, how people were making space for themselves within these different foodways, either through uh, farming and agriculture and or making restaurants, grocery stores, 
uh, various communities were moving in pretty rapidly and having an impact on the city. And so again, prior to that, I was not quite aware of the, the rapidly changing, shifting demographics. And so again, when Colleen and I first started speaking and just kind of sharing what our research interests were, we were both uh, pretty interested in this place that was really changing rapidly um, currently, that this change was happening while we were there. And so it was quite interesting to kind of see in this place where, like coming from El Paso, Texas, where there's a centuries-old Latin American Mexican community, that this place, Charlotte, was shifting uh, kind of in real time, right, right in front of us, and so that created a really interesting uh, sight of to see how this this shift was happening, or, or to see how people were making space for themselves in in in, in this new place. Um, and also, other scholars that had come before us also were looking at this interesting shift uh, in demographics with the city, uh, like Jeffrey Pilchard had made note of it, but also Jose Gomez uh, had looked at a a, a, a kind of a a comparison between what was happening in Los Angeles and what was happening in Charlotte. And these were things that I came to be exposed to once having lived there. And so it was just a very interesting time because there was so much shift in the demographics. So it was a little bit serendipitous that we were both there. We both were employed at the university in the city. But then after spending some time there and really getting to understand the community, we also saw that there was really quite interesting things happening that we could make a little bit more visible through our research and kind of understand how how people are making space for themselves um, in this city. Now, I'd like to hear more about the the public culture and the landscape of restaurants and and grocery stores and food trucks that you um, featured in your research. Um, But first, we're going to take a short break and we will be back in just a moment. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. And we're back. 
This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Rowell talking with Consuelo Carsalas and Colleen Hamelman about their new article, Looking for True Mexican Food in Charlotte, Insights into How Authenticity is Produced, Experienced, and Interpreted in Migrant Food Spaces, now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. So your research examines public culture. You mentioned, quote, the restaurants, grocery stores, food trucks, and other venues, end quote, and you specifically focus on Latin American and Caribbean food businesses. Can you say more about these migrant foodways within the context of Charlotte? For somebody who's never been to Charlotte and our listeners join us uh, from around the world, how would you describe this new food economy? And when did it start to take shape? Yeah, so as Consuelo mentioned, right, Charlotte is a rapidly growing city, but as part of that, its demographics are also changing very quickly. Um, We are a city where in the year 2000, only about 5% of our population was made up of people from Latin American descent. And today that number is more than 14%. And so in a very short period of time, that population has just grown extensively. And alongside that, so have all of their food um, businesses, their restaurants, and their grocery stores and their food trucks, as we mentioned. Um, and in many ways, you know, those those businesses are doing two things. They're demonstrating the cultures of the places where people are coming from, but they're also trying to appeal to, to the residents who have been here for decades um, in the hopes of being able to bring consumers through their doors. Um, Charlotte is what we call a, a sunbelt city in the U.S., and so we're relatively young. We have a pretty suburban landscape. Um, Um, And we see that in sort of where the migrant food businesses are. Um, There's really kind of two corridors where you find most of them, but they're spread around the city. There's not really sort of an enclave like you would find in some older cities. Um, And, you know, the two corridors where we focus is where you find the most, but those are also places where you're going to find halal restaurants and African restaurants and East Asian restaurants and so many other choices as well. Um, And I would say that, you know, the culinary scene overall in Charlotte is increasingly being recognized outside the city for its growing upscale restaurants that are appealing to diverse cultural culinary traditions. Um, A lot of um, places that are focused on Southern cuisine and so on. But at the same time, we have many of these Latin American and Caribbean restaurants and groceries that are at much lower price points um, that are in different parts of the city and are bringing in different clientele. Um, And so we have this really big mix um, of everything that's going on here. Um, And I will say that, you know, Mexican cuisine is what's most represented among the businesses, um, but there are also many regionally focused cuisines, Salvadoran, Guatemalan, Dominican, um, and an increasing number of sort of self-declared Tex-Mex restaurants. And all of this has really evolved over the last 20 years in Charlotte. 20 years. And so the the focus of the article is on the public culture. But one of the things that I found really striking when reading it was that there's a notion of home and homemade food that comes up again and again in uh, the online reviews. Um, And you frame this within a notion of what you call palate memory. Can you tell us? what palate memory is and how this connects to to home within the landscape of this emerging new economy? 
So the concept of palette memory, we were pulling from uh, Cruz Miguel Ortiz uh, Cuadra's concept of, he, he is the first one to kind of coin this phrase of palette memory. Um, but in his piece, he's really looking at what, like an experience or memories that are united uh, through taste of food. So in the piece, we, we pull on one of the quotes that we found from the online reviewers who kind of, I'm sorry, it was from a business owner who kind of does this very visceral description of snapping his fingers and then he's home. So the concept of palate memory is this idea that there is a taste or a flavor that once you kind of experience it, reminds you of either home or experience, but there's like a connection with the memory of that food. So what was really interesting that we found in our analysis of the online reviews is how, like you mentioned, how much food is uh, invoked. I'm sorry, how much home is invoked in these reviews. So memories of this taste, just like my grandmother's cooking, or this reminds me of home, um, or even this idea that people are from elsewhere, Texas, California. And so they've been searching for flavors that remind them of home. And then this restaurant happens to be the thing that uh, does that for them, that that resonates with those memories of those flavors. So um, in short, palate memory is really this idea of this memory that's associated with the taste of food. And then this idea that once you uh, are removed from that place that has that flavor, you're searching for it. So again, with the rapid change in demographics in Charlotte, a lot of people were making it clear that their definitions of authenticity were being formulated from their previous experiences or homes elsewhere. And that this place was then evocative of those flavors as a way to kind of demonstrate again, without necessarily naming the place as authentic directly, using those descriptors as kind of being the marker of this place is authentic for them because it is evoking these memories of home. And maybe this is a good illustration of the the iterative production of authenticity, the relationality that Colleen had uh had mentioned earlier um, as part of this this process of invoking authenticity. Uh, is this new to the phenomena of tastemaking with the emergence of social media, this, this iterative uh, production of authenticity? I don't know that I would say that it's new, but I think that it evolves when it takes place both online and in person. And, and we talk a little bit in, about this in this work about contact zones as places in which people of differential power come into contact with each other. Um, and you know that this is happening with the emergence of social media, both online and in the physical space of the relation of the restaurant. And that this creates those relationships in the same way that it might, if we were just going into the restaurant every day, right. Which people have been doing for a long time. Um, but we find that these digital contact zones and the relationships within them are really compelling sites of analysis for understanding the ways in which people are invoking authenticity and what that means, right? What that does for their relationships, for their understanding, and even for the construction of food ways. And you are both food studies researchers um, in, in different fields, coming from different fields, but both working on food studies. And also, I imagine, food consumers. So has this research 
impacted or changed your own relationship with online restaurant reviews? Yes. How so? <laughs> it's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you, you use know, them? <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, as Consuelo mentioned, we were both new when we started, new into Charlotte when we started this project. But as food studies researchers, we wanted to go out into our new city and understand food and, and places to go. And so for me, at least, I looked to those reviews. Um, and it wasn't until we d- started this project and really started analyzing them that I realized I myself was doing a lot of the same things that the reviewers were doing, right? That I was thinking about how this relates to my previous experiences and trying to assess restaurants based on that habitus that I had developed somewhere else. And so for me, now that I see that going on, um, it helps me to sort of understand the reviews that I'm seeing a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with Colleen. So since this research project started, I've since left Charlotte and am now and in San Diego. And so um, I felt like the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium on Latin American Foods in Charlotte really helped to give me an orientation to the city. And I was able to kind of use that as a jumping point to explore different restaurants, explore uh, different uh, grocery stores in parts of the city. But having moved to San Diego in the midst of the pandemic has been quite interesting in terms of trying to get my bearings here with, with the different foodways in, in this new city. And so I, we, my husband and I have been looking at online reviews and kind of looking at them with this lens of what we, as Colleen described it, of like, what are people doing? What are the patterns that are happening in people's reviews? And what do I find to be most persuasive in their reviews, right? So if someone's like, uh, you know, there's a there's a difference between California Mexican food and Texas Mexican food, although El Paso, what I'm used to, right, with my previous experiences is different than Tex-Mex. So just kind of looking for those different markers, but also just being aware that that is what I am doing now. Like that has become part of my way of reading these reviews and thinking about just the way that people are constructing their reviews, as well as what's resonating with me and just being a little bit more cognizant of it. And I just wanted to emphasize that listeners can learn more and read the full piece in the newest issue, um, 22.2 of Gastronomica. I have a final question about your next projects, but first I wanted to invite you, is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners about this particular article in the couple of minutes that we have before wrapping up? So I wanted to give one quick plug that we worked through a lot of this article as part of the Association for the Study of Food and Society's writing groups um, that they've been organizing the last couple of years. And for us, as working as a collaborative on this paper, it was really nice to have that group to kind of push us a little bit, but help us think more clearly through the interdisciplinary pieces of it. Um, and so just wanted to quick plug, quickly plug how wonderfully helpful that group was as we were putting this paper together. Fantastic. Thank you, Colleen. And now I'll ask, I'll ask each of you, Colleen and Consuelo, what about your next projects? What are you looking at now? What are you working on? So for me coming up next and something that I've been continuing to work on is a book project that I have that's really looking at the images that are paired with Mexican foodstuffs. And when I say that, I mean both in product packaging as well as like the logos on different restaurants, 
as well as the construction of the interior, like the decor inside, paintings, um, hanging materials, just what does the inside of a restaurant look like? And really starting to ask uh, and try to find where those images of Mexico come from. How have certain uh, markers become associated with Mexican food? And somewhat of the similar way of what we looked at in this paper, of what images now kind of associate a notion of authenticity with the foodstuffs that they're paired with. So if we see the interior of a Mexican restaurant, does that have an influence on whether or not we find that the food in there will be authentic? Um, Or does it play a role in constructing that idea of authenticity? But just kind of thinking when you see certain symbols, does that automatically evoke the notion of Mexican food specifically? And so that's what this next book project that I'm currently working on is kind of looking at. It's looking at both what are the images that we associate with Mexican foodstuffs, both from the perspective of consumers, as well as those from restaurant owners, how they construct their restaurant spaces, and then looking at the history of where some of these images come from. So some of those kind of common images that we have associated with Mexican food, where do they come from? What is their history? How have they come throughout their life to be paired with Mexican foodstuffs as markers. So that's forthcoming. Uh, it's a long project. It's It's been in the process, but that's that's the next biggest project that, that I'm individually working on. But Colleen and I are also looking at, as well as with Sarah, are looking at uh, this type of data set that we had in this piece from another perspective. And so that should be coming out really from the construction of place. Um, construction those are some of, of the things that, that I have coming along the way. Thanks, Consuelo. Colleen? Yeah, I'll just add that, um, and I think we nicely show our our disciplinary places here, um, that um, I've got a big project that is trying to understand how urban development, um, especially sort of the upgrading of urban cores and the areas immediately surrounding them are impacting migrant communities and migrant food businesses in these growing Sunbelt cities like Charlotte. And so especially here in Charlotte, right, as developments continuing to grow out of our urban core, it's it's coming into the neighborhoods that used to be affordable for migrant businesses. um, And it's increasing the prices and changing the clientele. And so I'm trying to understand where businesses go, how that change is really impacting their success and and their business models. Thank you, Consuelo and Colleen, for joining us. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. This summer season, we're talking with authors from our newest issue, 22.2. Join us again in two weeks as we speak with historian Jennifer Dweck about representations of Mediterranean cuisine in American food journalism. And subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed to stay tuned for new episodes. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.